Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn, and I'm a WCT certified educator, and in this podcast, I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties, and thus interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. Long Island is celebrating its 50th anniversary as a winemaking region, and to mark that occasion, I recently interviewed three winemakers from Long Island. Jenny Smith, who's the assistant winemaker at Pellegrini Vineyards, and Jonathan Bomberg, who is the winemaker at RGNY, which is the more recent winery, and they're both based on the North Fork of Long Island. And part of this interview is also Roman Roth of Wolfer Estate, who are based on the Hamptons, which is on the south side of the island. So some different perspectives on the history of Long Island and how it is evolving. Then let's start with Jenny. Tell me about yourself and your relationship with Long Island. I was born and raised local, touch off. I've been a part of the Long Island wine industry for 14 years now, and it's a true part of my heart and soul. My grandfather was a big potato farmer out here back in the day, like many of the vineyards were at one point in time. And he used to own the land that Pellegrini Vineyards planted. So I not only feel a strong connection, very personal to where I work and what I do, but also the region to see it grow into what it's become and flourish a part of Long Island so richly is been endearing and excellent to see happen. I've been with Pellegrini, a few other Long Island vineyards here and there. I did wholesale sales in the city or vineyards as well. Um, so I, I have a okay range of experience from seller work on the assistant winemaker at Pellegrini to, um, you know, sales and consulting. Also been behind the bar in a tasting room, a, a little bit of everything. And so you mentioned uh, potatoes and other crops there. Maybe that's something we can get into about the kind of the farming history of Long Island, not just grape varieties but um, and wine, but also other fruit, uh, vegetables and crops. Jonathan, uh, introduce yourself, please, and your relationship with Long Island. Yeah, so my name is Jonathan Bomberg. I'm the winemaker with RG&Y, Rivero Gonzalez, New York. Uh, both Rivero Gonzalez and myself are actually newer to Long Island, so... Unlike Jenny, who has a lot of history here, we're kind of saw the potential from the outside for this region as a superior wine growing region and came from other places. So the Rivero Gonzalez family is coming from Mexico and they have a winery down there. But Maria Rivero Gonzalez, our CEO, uh, went to school at Columbia University in Manhattan. And when they were exploring the area, discovered the potential for the wine region out here. I myself am coming from California, but I felt constricted. There was a bit of a bubble in the California industry right now where there's a lot of status quo that can be very hard to overcome. A region like Long Island, I saw a lot of potential in the ability to grow, develop, and experiment here. There's still an ethos of adventure for this, this wine region, I believe. Yeah, and I think that's something else we'll discuss as well about the potential of Long Island and that there's history there, but there's also a sense of um, newness as, as well. Uh, Roman, can you introduce yourself and your relationship with Long Island? Um, Roman Roth, I'm the winemaker and partner at Wolfer Estate. For 31 years, I'm here now at Wolfer Estate. We are a winery in the Hamptons, so on the South Fork of Long Island. And came from Germany, I worked in Germany, worked in Australia a while, worked a very short time at Sainsbury in, in California, and just to get away from Riesling and see something else. But it's a beautiful wine region, Long Island. We certainly a family estate, which is beautiful because you can make decisions, you can quicker follow new ideas, be very creative at Wolfer. And you know, if you would have to first ask for permission from an insurance company in France, nothing would happen. So this is a unique thing, and as Jonathan alluded, you know, this is everything is new, everything is still exciting on Long Island. We're still breaking the glass ceiling when you get a 94 points or something. This is all first and the first and the first of something new. Uh, so that's an exciting time to be on Long Island. Great. I love the fact that um, all three of you have slightly different backgrounds and um, kind of introductions to Long Island and the reasons that you were there. So let's talk about Long Island and how would you describe it 
to the consumer who knows nothing about Long Island? Is there a kind of a sentence or a very short description that you would use to really engage um, the consumer? And I'll start with you, Jenny. So I believe Long Island is a very unique microclimate, both socially and geographically. We are a glacial deposit that left very nice, sandy, loamy soil behind for excellent grape growing. It has excellent drainage, and it's also why we're a coveted farming region in general across all crops. And we're a wine region that likes to help each other. We all love to see each other succeed and thrive. What we have to offer is unique and true to our region itself. And um, Jonathan, you're from California. What is your perspective of Long Island and how you would describe it? So it's interesting that you kind of make that relation to California as well, because that's usually when people come into the taste room and they ask me, what's the main winemaking difference between California and New York? And I have to say it's the farming. Um, That's where the most differences occur. We are a cold, humid, wet region. We get three and a half inches of rain on average every month, which is significantly more than I think almost any other wine growing region in the world. So we're always wet. Um, So we have a lot of different pressures that are involved with our farming that don't necessarily see in California. Um, Also, composting programs are very different. Whereas Jenny was talking about the rich nutrients that we have in our soil, we can't make our own compost, but we're not doing it in order to add nutrients. We actually do an aerobic fermentation on our compost in order to bring in the bacteria, the fungi, the life of the soil. So that's kind of what we focus on. So it's that kind of slight shifts in dynamic and how we approach those same goals. But to kind of sum up Long Island in roughly one sentence, it's cold and wet, but beautiful. Pretty hot today. It's still (laughs) wet, still humid today. The wetness won't go away. But I guess I feel Long Island is really well positioned in the world with climate change, especially. I take water over drought and fire any day. And there's two things. We are surrounded by the Atlantic. This is uh, you know, a fantastic situation where we don't get any winter damage. We don't get any spring frosts. I mean, there's any wine region in the world right now has problems. You know, France has lost in 2021, Burgundy, 70% of the crop to frost. This happens. Long Island is very well blessed with our influence, the sea breeze that we have. In the summer, it has this cool influence. That's why people from Manhattan come to the Hamptons because it's cooler literally out here. And that's what gives us a slow and steady ripening curve. I like to do this on Zoom, it's a nice curve. But hot climates can only dream of having natural acidity and having cool nights like this and having, you know, having this wonderful mixture. And then in the fall, it's the last area in New York State to get a frost. So we, if you have healthy leaves and healthy canopies, you can get tremendous long hang time of 111 days from mid-flowering to mid-maturity. So unique situation. And the last point, we are the same latitude as Madrid and Naples. So we're much further south than German or French vineyards. And that gives us tremendous sun influence, gives us ripe seeds, ripe skins. And this is what makes a unique Long Island so special, this cool sea breeze that's elegant and makes us vibrant, you know, fresh wines. And we can ripen with our sun influence and with the long hang time, get ripe, mature tannins and make big world-class red wines as well. So I know when um, people learn that New York has the same latitude as central Spain and uh, southern Italy, it kind of blows their minds because they just don't really think about it in that way. But also the climate is quite different. So if you were to compare New York to Madrid or Napoli, as you've mentioned, how is New York on Long Island specifically, completely different, and why? It has been compared to the climate of Bordeaux in the past, yeah, but of course we have the freedom in, in America, we can grow Chardonnay, for example, Bordeaux is not allowed, so we can grow Riesling and Chardonnay and, and Pinot Gris here, anything, is, you know, that's the nice thing in America, there's no rules. And European countries are stuck with concrete boots of tradition where they cannot move and climate change is changing the landscape and it's impossible. I just was in Germany, the the most famous vineyard sites that have been there for 200 years are now not the best sites anymore. They're too dry, the the acidity drops out. Actually, it's the northwest facing slopes that are the better ones. But tell this to people who have been 
buying Montrachet for the last you know hundred of years and whatever. So we have the freedom wherever the best site is. You can make you know, you can you have you, you can do what you want. So that helps us. But we are in this unique situation where we have cool sea breezes, yet great sun and and hot days and cool nights. So it's a lovely sort of somewhere closer to Bordeaux, but it's literally the growing degree days in the last 10 years have risen from like in 2009, our, you know, average, average growing degree days, which was, I think 2009 was 2,940, let's say. In 2021, we were 3,460, which is, is like was the average in California, I think it's 3,200, I want to say. Anyway. So we've gotten warmer, has helped us to ripen fruit, yet we have enough cool, cool sea breeze to keep nice elegance. So we're in a beautiful situation on Long Island. And the only danger is a hurricane. That's the that's the one big, you know, our worry. Yeah, hurricanes do sound like a danger, but hardly happen. So a rare danger. With hurricanes, we call them the H word in the cellar here. We, as uh, Jonathan was saying, yes, we do have high humidity. We have a very unique microclimate here. And that leads to vintage variation, which keeps winemakers on our toes and creative as well. And I think that's very important. To us. And that vintage variation comment is very important because when people come to the taste room and I talk about the production of our wines, I pour in a 2020. 20, Sauvignon Blanc next to like a 2019 or even a 2022 Sauvignon Blanc. They're completely different. You have to kind of explain the whole idea of the vintage variation. For us, we don't make red wine every year. We have a Bordeaux blend. We've only made it in the past six years three times. So we're really kind of listening to that vintage variation because either, again, that cool climate, we don't get to a ripeness level we're comfortable with or the humidity just everything falls apart. Um, we're practicing as organic as we can in our vineyard. So especially the H word coming through does impact us very hard in those vintages. So we've got two H words, hurricanes and humidity. And maybe the humidity is a more um, consistent um, issue that you have to deal with. Long Island is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Can you talk about the development of Long Island and its wines and how things have changed and kind of where Long Island wineries are at uh, right now? Uh, Jonathan, can you um, explain that a little bit. RGY is in an interesting position because we uh, are a younger winery, but we took over a property from the Entmans, Martha Clara Vineyards, that had been farming since, owned the property since the 70s, planted their first vines in the 90s. And kind of the whole site attests to that history of Long Island. When the Entmans bought the property in the 70s, they initially used it for horses and the other animals. There was a lot of, there was alpaca, there was cows, there was uh, horses and they were using it primarily for livestock. Uh, it wasn't until the 90s that they saw, started seeing the potential of what the other neighbors were doing, kind of like when that big boom was happening in the Long Island wine industry, started planting their own vines and launched their own brand. And I think RG is just the next logical step in that equation, bringing in, for example, myself and bringing in all these people from outside sources to kind of create a new ethos to kind of help push forward the industry. And, and Jenny, you've mentioned the Pellegrini history of farming other crops. Um, how is that part of Long Island's history in relation so, to grape growing as well? Right. So Pellegrini only grows grapes. But uh, years back before it was a planted vineyard, it was a potato farm by grandfathers, but also cauliflower, broccoli, um, a lot of the traditional Long Island staples. So when I was very young um, in, the, in the early 90s, there was maybe a handful of vineyards out here. I'm going to say about 10 that I recognized and would drive by. And it was always such a beautiful sight to see the vines go as you drive past them. And as I've grown with time, so has the region. And now there's probably upwards of 45 wineries and tasting rooms and countless vineyard sites. There's a bulk production facility in Mattatuck now. So it's really an region that has grown from just a few vineyards. Uh, Louisa and Alex Hargrave planted the first vines back in uh, 1973, hence the 50th anniversary this year. And um, to see that vineyard start an entire movement of wine and culture and community out here is 
been so heartwarming to be a part of and to see and to have everyone love and help each other. So it's uh, just very great. And it's also beautiful. You know, vines are just the epitome of farming, in my opinion. So it's great to see from I, I actually own a small uh, flower farm and specialty tomato and uh, pepper farm as well. Myself, I have a small plot of land that I try to keep up with. And I, I do grow some some grapes here and there for myself. Uh, but it's just the the community out here and to see the farming have a big resurgence is just very endearing. Roman, when did you move to Long Island and, and start working at Wolfer Estate? Um, I came in 1992 for the harvest in August. Came, came out to a big party of Christian Wolf, the founder of Wolf Estate. Uh, well, we met and told me that buy whatever you need to buy, do whatever you want to do, just make great wine. So that would seem very promising. Manhattan, two hours away, of course, is the, the greatest, one of the greatest wine markets in the world and food markets. The Hamptons itself being surrounded by the ocean, the seafood. I mean, the, the farming history, the, yeah, there's the produce that's here. There's, it's definitely, it, obviously it was a vacation spot for the, for the New Yorkers and New Jersey, New Yorkers for the East Coast. But it's becoming also a, a destination for the, the food and for the wines and it's becoming a wine region. And I think we're still in the infancy of this. It has been 50 years, but they've been becoming more and more known that people in the summer, it will be the summer crowd, the beach crowd who loves, you know, rosé and loves wines. But there is six, seven months of the year where people will come and travel here to experience this fabulous food and fabulous wine and the culture out here. And so that's a, well, you could see that early on even, you know, that's why we started making a dry rosé at the time. The first I came, there was a party, there was French rosé flowing. And I said, then I looked at the vineyards and looked at the climate and the sea breeze. And, I said, well, I think rosé would do really well. And we made a dry rosé and you know, everybody drank sweet rosés those days. And, you know, and people didn't want to touch Long Island with a stick, basically, because in New York, you have to show that you have style and money. And so you wear your Hermes belt and you drive your whatever Range Rover and you buy a Chateau such and such to show that you have style and money. And no matter how good the Long Island wine was, it didn't give that cachet, that feeling of of style and wealth and finally that has broken the prejudice is breaking and you know certainly some in a bottle certain wines the high-end wines are breaking that prejudice and now it's become a very different you know different business in a different wine region now finally but from the hard hard parts not that it's you know it's always hard work farming but it has gotten much 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 easier now and, and more fun and more appreciated um, so let's talk about Long Island um, as a place. And so, Jonathan, you're based on the North Fork, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, and Jenny Pellegrini's on the North Fork as well, whereas Wolfer Estate is on the Hamptons, which is the south of the island. So you've got slightly different places. Jonathan, can you explain the growing conditions of North Fork, the challenges, but also the benefits? Our property is actually one of the furthest west that you could still be called the North Fork. So we are definitely kind of moving away from some of that very coastal cool climate on the point, but we're still less than a mile away from the coastline to the north. So we're still very coastal in that in that sense. But basically there's a very interesting, almost consistent topsoil across the North Fork that I've noticed so far. There's about six to eight inches of this very nutrient-rich alluvial topsoil. We talked about that earlier. Jenny was talking about being able to grow so many crops readily simply because of that nutrient level. So it's six, eight inches of that very nutrient-rich topsoil. Then below that, it's sand, almost as far as you can dig. Uh, there's pockets of clay here and there, but really if you dig down 20, 30 feet, you're going to keep getting sand. So there's a beautiful drainage. So we talk about that rain as well, but it doesn't necessarily sit in the soil. So there's not that concern. The rain just causes the humidity, which is a concern, but it doesn't saturate the roots. So we still are able to kind of work around that in our growing in the vineyards. You know, humidity is always a factor and vintage variation, as Jonathan was talking about earlier. Every year is a little bit different. Uh, also, specifically, we are influenced by the Long Island Sound, which is between Connecticut and Long Island, and the bay between the Hamptons and the North Fork. So we really have a microclimate on the North Fork that is 
so unique. There's actually something um, that we've, I've been calling the Kutchog effect, where I've watched rainstorms come over the North Fork and they part over Kutchog when they, uh, it just happens. It happened the last week, uh, I believe, uh, just further west, Riverhead and Jamesport received close to three inches of rain. We had none in our rain gauge. So there's even just within the uh, small North Fork itself, just down the road, one of our vineyard sites in Southhold years back was hit by a hailstorm where our vineyard here about five miles west had no damage whatsoever. So there's right a unique geography microclimate that keeps winemakers on their toes and keeps us, as I said, creative and always looking forward to the next vintage and something that also is fun to play with in that respect. And uh, Roman, what about the Hamptons, a slightly different area? How is that different from the other two uh, wineries that we've just been uh, talking um, about? Well, first of all, if it would have been up to me, I would have called it all east end of Long Island and not divided this time. You know, it's a small wine region. We have three villages in France have more vineyards than Long Island. We have 3,000 acres. So it's beautiful. It's it's a good size, but it's not a big wine region and to divide this marketing power between Hamptons and the North Fork. But that ship has sailed long ago. So there's a little difference. The South Fork has a Bridgehampton loam, which is a again alluvial, but clay loam silt mix, which is heavier. That has maybe eight feet, eight feet of this top soil, and then gravelly sand underneath it. So great drainage. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would say the further you east you go on the North Fork, the more the more ocean influence you have. The way Jonathan alluded already, the closer you get to Riverhead, which is the, the center of the two fingers, basically. I, I can't do the Spock thing with my hands, but it's like a lobster claw. The, the closer you get to the middle of the two forks, the water there's more there's more land mass, so it's warmer. So we certainly want the protection from the sound, the bay and the ocean for winter damage and spring frost and for all that, which is working really well. Uh, but you do want a bit of that heat. So there's certainly a nice thing. So I always say in a in a normal year, in a or in a cold year, in a normal year and in a hot year, and I like to be on the Bridgehampton Loam on the South Fork, in a cool and wet year, I like to be in Riverhead or in Calverton. So it's a, a it's like any region has small small different regions but it's a you know there's certainly a, sli a slight difference for sure so blending is a way to when you move you know i work with different growers also so it's actually nice when you have the little slight like nicer acidity or, or lower ph and a higher ph and you can right away at, at crush basically adjust what you what's coming in so you don't need to add anything else you just add two different grapes and you have a balance and that's what I want to talk about next, farming practices in the climate of Long Island. Um, what are the challenges with um, farming in Long Island and how do you deal with them? You've mentioned blending and grape perception there, but what else happens in the vineyard um, in Long Island? Uh, Jonathan, do you want to talk about that? As I mentioned earlier as well, is that we practice organic when and where we can. Certification is a whole other question simply because of humidity, because of hurricanes, and because of those unique challenges that we face month after month, day after day. We practice when and where we can. And I think that level of flexibility is important for a region like ours, understanding that we can't follow the same rules that were written for regions that don't have our humidity. And like I mentioned, our compost as well, and our compost is pseudo kind of biodynamic. We use some elements of it, but again, we are a unique region, so we've adapted it to our own specific needs, um, using the same philosophies, using those same goals, but just realizing that the means can't be achieved the same way here in our region. Um, again, keep an open mind. We're always experimenting. For example, this year, well, every year we pick up a certain block and kind of play around with different practices in, in terms of the vineyard. So in, in our Riesling block this year, we were, were experimenting with um, this new kind of compost regimen, as well as spraying a, um, a biostimulant on the leaves in order to help kind of boost the natural immunity of the vines. Because again, our, one of our goals is to move towards natural, to move towards organic. We really want to give the vine itself as much tools as possible. And I think Long Island and the North Fork and the Hamptons requires some level of open-minded experimenting in terms of vineyard practices and 
I don't think we've gotten to the point where we can say this is the right way of doing it yet at, at Long Island. I think there's still a lot of space to grow, to develop, and, and understand all of that. Well, I think what, what happens on Long Island, because of the, we talked about humidity, I think it's a, it, it uses, it forces us to grow the most, the prettiest vineyards in the world, basically. You can't have bushy plants because you would trap moisture. So our vineyards, I mean, people joke, but they look like topiaries. <laughs> they are the most manicured vineyards that you can, you have to fly to some of the greatest, greatest wine regions in the world to see these manicured vineyards. And that helps us to make super high quality wines because you have you know, good photosynthesis, we have the light, we have the sunlight here, we don't have lots of cloudy days. So that's helping. So it's a, it's a little adversity forces you to fine-tune your, your practices in the vineyard. We farm sustainable. Long Island was the first independently sustain, uh, certified uh, sustainable program east of the Rocky Mountains. So we're very proud of that. New York is now adopting a similar, a similar program. So there will be a New York sustainability program as well. But Long Island had the first one on the East Coast. So, so it forces us to fine-tune. And one other big point about this is, for example, you know, in hot climates, you, you try to keep your grapes in shade because they get sunburned. Otherwise, they be, turn into raisins or they actually turn into, they, they, it doesn't even turn into raisins. They just, they, they, they get burned and fall off. So in our case, we can 100% expose the clusters to the, to the sun. That helps that, again, the minute the sea breeze that is all constant, dries the dew, dries any moisture if you have rain or something, so we have less disease pressure. And the key element is it lowers the pyrazines when you do your leaf removing right after flowering. And that's something why when you, even in a cooler year, when you have a slightly off year, we don't get any more of these pyrazines that you would get 25 years ago when you tasted the Long Island wine or when you have a vineyard that is not as manicured. Sometimes in, in hot climates, you know, Cap Sauvignon, why is it so tannic? Why is it so dense? Because, you know, they, they, they have pyrazines that they're fighting in as well. So a really wonderful, again, it forces us to, to do this extreme vineyard interference or vineyard practices to make these manicured looking vineyards and boy, do we benefit and, and it sets us apart from, from many other regions. So a great, great, a great foundation to make quality wines. And then if you have the right site or if you spend extra eight people and extra money on your vineyards to, to go for high quality and or you have a good year, you can really make world-class wines that can age 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. So that's quite a unique situation for us. It makes us the best on the East Coast, I think, for sure, as a result of this climate. And yes, there is, of course, sometimes worries about it. But again, every wine region has to worry about something. <laughs> and was this humidity. Jonathan said about um, producing organically as much as we can. That is something that also stands true for Pellegrini. We have a plot called our six by three. The vines, but the rows are six foot spacing. The vines are three foot apart. That is too tight for our tractors to get in between. And it is a it is a small plot. And it's something that we use as a tester, as a precursor for what could be coming to our vines throughout the season of harvest. It is a plot that is picked early. We don't let it sit around and rot, of course. But because of that, uh, it's completely manicured by hand. All of the leaf pruning is done by hand. In fact, Pellegrini, our entire plot is taken care of um, by six guys who are incredible hard workers. And they're always on top of seeing the first of the sour rot or the botrytis that's creeping in. And that plot specifically lets us know what could be coming into play for the rest of the vines that year. Generally, when is the harvest in Long Island and has that changed over the years? So harvest starts uh, for sparkling wines, I would say, as early as the very end of August or early September. And continues throughout late October. We are not often graced with uh, the ability to do many late harvests, but when the opportunity arises, you do see them come up on Long Island. So I would say the, the bulk of our harvest at Pellegrini is, I would say, second week of September to the end of October. Well, just to mention what changed uh, 20, 25 years ago, we would pick, we pick now two weeks earlier than we used to pick. So there's definitely, I think on average, I think it's 
the degree has gone 1.9 degrees Fahrenheit warmer now in the, since, since in the last 20 years. So it doesn't sound like a lot in Fahrenheit, 1.9, but it has gotten warmer and we picked two weeks early, which is actually one of the, the blessings for Long Island. You know, the earlier you can pick, the, you, know, you have it safe in the tank, you know, the, the wine. So there's something, but in just in general, we still have this tremendous long hang time because we used to be, I think, around 120 days from mid-flowering to mid-maturity. Right now, I think we're at 111 or 110 and a half, I think, the last time I did this number. So good good situation to, to pick, but it's a long hang time, a long, a long harvest on Long Island because we do so many different varieties. We have you know, elegant whites, Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, sparkling wines, Rosé, they get picked early, and then everybody makes the big reds and, and you know, powerful reds that because we are the late last area in New York State to get the frost, as I mentioned, you can pick sometimes even in the first week in November, we still have a, a, a green canopy has happened and people would pick their Cap Sauvignon Petit Verdot in, in beginning of November. So it makes for a long harvest, but when you're young, you can do these things. Well, let's talk about the different grape varieties and styles of wine in Long Island. Jonathan, which grape variety stands out for you as what really excites you? Uh, absolutely, Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc are probably the two that stand out as number one. And at RG, we actually do two different versions of both those grapes in order to show that range. We have our entry level, which tends to more stainless steel driven than the Sauvignon Blanc. Then we do a Sauvignon Blanc Semillon Reserve that is has 24 hours of the skins, uh, oak contact, and oak aging for 11 months. So it's texture. So we're kind of showing that entire range. So it does, Sauvignon Blanc is unique for our region. It doesn't match california it doesn't match new zealand there's definitely an identity in terms of the terroir in Sauvignon blanc Cabernet franc i think is also there I, there's a lot of potential i think in terms of finding that balance between that spice and that fruit uh, as roman was saying some of the earlier Cabernet francs had a lot of pyrazines to them but we're able to remove the leaves 100 percent, and we are able to develop um, past the purazines at lower alcohol levels than other regions are able to do. So that balance is a unique balance, I think, is only potentially matched in somewhere like the Loire region that does very serious Cabernet Francs. Well, I think as a whole, our region's bread and butter is Chardonnay and Merlot. Every, every vineyard I think of grows them and is by far our, our probably, and Cabernet Franc is in there too, our most planted varietals as a region. I think it's very unique that our region specifically is home to so many unique varietals. There's vineyards that are doing incredible Chenin Blancs, actually. Uh, Finger Lakes are very well known for Riesling, but I believe it was 2014, uh, Palmanoff Vineyards just down the road from here made New York State's best Riesling. So that's obviously a viable grape out here as well. Albarino is now being planted uh, here and there and making incredible examples of the varietal and I also have um, dreams one day that we would plant more Sauvignon Blanc here as well that uh, it's just such a special grape for our terroir and it's not New Zealand it's not California with Jonathan said it's Chardonnay is something that I also believe when Long Island does it right we do it better than just about anyone else and Cabernet Sauvignon when we get that really nice late dry weather in the season and we're able to ripen those big reds we actually made a, a wine that called perfect the other day and i've never used that word for for wine i don't think ever but it was a cabernet based blend that as a region we're able to grow such a variety of grapes that it's very unique and awesome completely agree with both of you those four varieties are the the, 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 the bread and butter and then there are these fun other varieties. We grow Trebbiano, and I think my goal is to become the biggest Trebbiano grower in America, which I think may turn cake only 10 acres or something. We have, <laughs> we have four, three and a half, four, four right now. Anyway, but the, the point of it all of it, of what's so nice about all of these varieties is that we make this, we can make elegant wines that are concentrated. And yet, like our reds, for example, they have 13 and a half volume percent. They're not like cough syrups from hot climate there. They are rich and well and well balanced and have texture and structure, but they're also elegant and are playful and make us, my, my slogan these days is always, we make the most food friendly wines in America on Long Island. That's the, and those varieties are the key, I think, to it. And what about um, sparkling wine? What is the potential for sparkling wine in Long Island? 
I was going to actually try butting back in and, and talk about sparkling because I do think stylistically sparkling is going to be our future as well. I think there's a lot of ability. I don't necessarily think it's going to be the classic way sparkling has been done. Even though we do a champagne style, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, 18 months of the least sparkling, we're also doing a sparkling Riesling that's actually left underscore. So it kind of builds some texture. We're doing a Lambrusco style uh, sparkling with some of our Merlot grapes. We are doing a rosé sparkling that's a little more approachable and friendly. So we're kind of experimenting with the power of bubbles to elevate our already natural city that we have. So I do think sparkling is definitely an avenue we have to explore, but I don't think we necessarily have to be exploring it from the same direction that other regions are. Again, I think it's very important that Long Island comes into its own identity and explores what sparkling means to us. Well, we make since 1992 sparkling wine, so it's uh, something so suitable. This cool of sea breezes, you know, and you pick it early. The, it's, I mean, you see England now, you see, you know, it's, it's getting too hot in France. It's like literally, we have a, a unique situation to keep growing. And just to talk about the range, this is what makes Long Island so special. You have pet nets and fresh and all kinds of experimental, you know, you know things, Riesling sparklings, but then. We made a, in, for example, the other day we showed it when we had our 50th anniversary party in the city. We brought a 1998 uh, sparkling wine from Wolfram Etour Champenoise and 25 year old sparkling wine. It's as nice and as elegant as it gets and as fresh. And everybody who tasted it was shocked of the quality. So that's, you have this amazing range that you can both go both ways. And because we are so close to New York and we have the Hamptons and the North Fork and so many tourists, and it's a it's a tourist region. It's fun to have these different vines and not just make one thing, you know, like you know, one one particular thing. It's nice to do many different. Yeah. And Jenny, are you a fan of sparkling wine too? Big time. I'm actually thrilled that this got mentioned. It's my perhaps favorite Long Island style of wine that we produce here. Uh, I used to work at the Lens Winery, which is a they make a fantastic method champenois, 100% Pinot Noir that without doubt is delicious. It's four years on Louise, uh, all completely disgorged, riddled all by hand. And that wine I fell in love with so much making, it made me want to go on and explore other Long Island sparklings. And I've yet to be disappointed with a single one of them. Um, Ali Schaefer, she's doing this, uh, she's a local winemaker who's making an incredible pet nap of and as it, uh, RGNY was saying they do the, the Riesling now, and that is something unique and delicious, and also keeps it fun for the tourists, as Rowan was saying, that's very important to us. Make a wide variety of wine, so everyone can do something special and unique and different from your neighbor. For such a small region that wants to support and help everyone as well, and sparkling is a great way to get there. This conversation is making me very thirsty all of a sudden. Now we've started talking about sparkling wine. One thing I want to ask is, so Long Island is part of New York State. What is the relationship with the city? You've mentioned tourism a little bit. Uh, how important is New York City to Long Island's industry and how it develops in the future? Yeah, yeah. I, I think our proximity just makes sense that there's going to be some relationship. But as uh, Roman mentioned earlier, there there has been in the past a stigma by the city uh, towards Long Island, not necessarily taking their wine production seriously. And I think in the past 20 years that has changed and that's, uh, but it's been a pull and tug back and forth trying to figure out how to balance that relationship. It's, it's a lot of market work. I'm actually in the market very often with our wholesale team because um, we started our production. So RG started right at the beginning of the pandemic, right before the pandemic. And so we kind of shut down our wholesale department up until this year. So we're kind of back out in the market um, and it's been boots on the ground kind of talking to people. I've been in restaurants in the city and other places across the this coastline. And one thing I've heard multiple times is the buyer will say, I would not have tasted these wines if the winemaker was not here to pour them for me. So there's still that like need to be there and educate and to just get the wines in front of people. Because once they taste the wines that are coming from out here, they they love them. They, they, they recognize the quality. It's just the stigma is still in the back of people's minds. And so there's there's still that need to somehow get people the courage to taste 
these wines sometimes. I think that's an important point in general. If you meet the winemaker or someone from the winery who's really connected to it and passionate about it, you kind of buy into the wines, you learn about the wines. Whereas if it's just just tasting them, it's a very different experience. So yeah, definitely getting into the market is very important. Jenny, what about New York City for you and your relationship with the city? New York City and Long Island. I would say I, I moved there in, I, I had a, I lived in the city for five years from 2000 or 13 to 2018. And just in that very short period of time, I was the Metro sales manager for Palmer Vineyards. And I started out a little bit more difficult than things ended. I would go into a store with my portfolio and all my delicious wines. And it was more often no than yes, as far as even being able to book a tasting. Sometimes people weren't interested. And I heard a lot of times, which was heartbreaking, the buyer would say, I went wine tasting out there 15 years ago and I hated it all. No, thank you. We've come a long ways in 15 years. And um, I would try my hardest to preach that this was my home that I firmly still believe is one of the best places in the world to grow wine. As the my stint in the city elongated and towards the end of the five years, I noticed walking into a restaurant, very often people welcomed me and be like, oh, great. I couldn't wait to try these. I just read about them in the Wall Street Journal or um, at numerous other articles that Long Island is still gaining a lot of popularity, but it's more doors are opening in the city and more people are being welcoming. Now we just had a big 50th party um, at a very well world-renowned restaurant in the city and more and more often are you seeing Long Island wines on the lists and on the shelves and stores Um, and that is only a trend that in my opinion is going to continue growing and rising so I think New York City is very important to us and also a lot of our tourism comes out of the city as well and yeah Roman you've mentioned the tourism um do you see New York City as the most important market or are there other markets that you're targeting Certainly, that I would include the whole tri-state area. I mean, New Jersey has become such an important market for us too. We sell over thirty-three thousand cases to just to New Jersey alone, which is you know, twenty years ago it was unimaginable that New Jersey would come around. So it's it's the whole tri-state area is such an important area, and but as Jonathan said, I mean, in liquor stores, you can find Wolf of Wine in every liquor store, but with restaurants, you still have to go personally in literally, you know, walk the pavement, make appointments, try again. It's a, it's a constant work. The whole world wants to sell to New York, of course. There's, I think there's 2,300 different rosés for sale in New York State through, through distributors. So there's a crazy selection. Everybody's trying to go there and I think Long Island has carved a wonderful niche so far, but it, that can that needs to be continued, and everybody you know has to continue that effort. So we are very fortunate; we have a nice team who who helps. I go a lot, but again, it's at the end people want to see the winemaker too, and so you can't just wait in your tasting room to become a world class winery. You know, you have to go out. I mean, in the meantime, we're now in 26 states, I think, or 28 by now, and nine countries. So it it, it all of that helps, I think. The whole New York wine reputation. The more you reach out, and it makes it, you know, makes it easier for everybody else as well. Two thousand three hundred roses in New York. I know where to get my rosé. Then that's, that's, <laughs> that's quite a lot. <laughs> One last thing I'd like to talk about is the Atlantic Ocean, which you've already um, touched on, and just kind of connecting Long Island to other Atlantic regions like Bordeaux, which you mentioned, but also thinking of uh, Rioja Baixas in Spain. And Jenny, you mentioned Albarino. Also thinking about Uruguay, which has the same similar Atlantic climate. How would you kind of connect Long Island to those Atlantic regions? Or just do you think of Long Island as completely its own thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that we all, as we've mentioned over and over in this in this conversation, the idea of humidity, the idea of different pressures being for each of these regions. And I think each of these regions that you mentioned adapts to those challenges differently. We're exploring with different grapes. Um, I think one reason Sauvignon Blanc works here for our specific climate is that that breeze that we get allows our Sauvignon Blanc to stay relatively clean year after year. It's one of the few varietals that in the vineyard is 
less challenging for us. Uh, we don't have any albarino planted, um, but we have some vignette that has that same kind of thick skin property. And so we, we see our protection from those as well. So I think it's each of those regions allows for experimentation. They all have experienced in the past and discovered what works for them. And I still think we're on that same journey for us. The, well, the whole world is fighting climate change. This is, it's going to be such a big subject. It's, it's people still, you know, I think are not realizing the impact what's coming our way. Man-made or not man-made doesn't really, doesn't make any difference. It is changing. And so for us, it's any cool climate, you know, is, is in the future. They said this 28 years ago at the Cool Climate Symposium in Melbourne, which is happening every four years. They talked exactly about the situation. Spain, yeah, you can make $100 wine, but you can't grow any more five-euro wine. It says no water. And this goes for any hot climate, doesn't matter in which region you are. And cooler climates will really benefit from this, but it's a pact with the devil. So you will have three, the best vintages in the world. You had a fabulous summer, fabulous fall. You make the best wine in the world. And then there could be one year where you have two hurricanes go over your vineyard. You're not picking a single grapes. Or in France, they will have frost. It will get cooler and there will be frost and you lose 70, 80% of the crop to, to frost. So every wine region is facing this, but cooler climates have the water. Uh, anybody who has water supply and, and can manage through the frosts, will make great wines in, in many years and that ultimately what makes you sustainable is that i think in those years when you made the best wine why shouldn't we make a 400 dollar bottle of cabernet sauvignon when it's the best when you had the perfect spring summer and fall and, and you made everything right and you have the wine that can age you know because in hot climates people are tired of spending you know two thousand dollars or nine hundred dollars for a bottle of wine somewhere else in, a, in an off vintage let's say even so I think it's a pact with the devil and we have to find a way to, to, to manage that where you can save money or keep money in, the, in those hot, fabulous years or you keep inventory so that when the year comes where you have 30-40% loss of the crop because of some weather event, you can survive. So I think also something very unique to Long Island is, is we're an island. We do not have room to expand. There's other regions in, in Spain where there's still you know, unplanted tens of thousands of acres. And in California, you know, uh, we're 3,000, about 3,000 acres as a region in its whole. There's vineyards in California that are 10,000 acres alone. So we're almost like, um, you know, the more concentrated the flavors, the, the better everything becomes. We are such a small region uh, geographically that we are striving for perfection in everywhere we can get it. We don't have the room to, uh, you know, go ahead and plant uh, varietals that, that might not work here. We're really doing the best we can to experiment intelligently and bring the best we absolutely can to our region because there's there's such a small area to succeed here. And that's and then, really what sets us apart. And then one final question. The future of Long Island. Where do you see it in 10 years? Uh, Jonathan, I think you should plant Albarino. That's where I think you should be in 10 years' time. Well, we actually have a small experimental block that we have. It's, it's 166 vines. We have six different varietals that we're always experimenting with. Um, the two that have shown some promise, um, for uh, at least on our end, is Gruner Veltliners. We're looking to potentially plant some commercial-level Gruner at some point, but then also another option. Zweigelt. Zweigelt, even though it has some of the same pressures as Pinot does in terms of being thin skin, the flavor complexity was just through the roof in the samples that we were playing around with. So those are two, two different varietals that we're looking at doing. But again, uh, we've talked mostly about international varietals because that's what was safe 30, 40, 50 years ago. It was safe to plant um, Merlot here because it's a hearty grape. It makes good wine fairly consistently. So I think Continue experimentation, both in the vineyard and the winery. We're, we're experimenting with clam foras. We're experimenting with skin fermented Gewürztraminer. We do a Gewürz that's on the skins for uh, six months before pressing. So we're always playing around with both sides of the equation. And I think we're still at that experimental stage. So saying where the future is, it's hard. I still think at this point, we're still unsure. We know climate change is happening, but we don't necessarily know how to impact us, especially with our unique surrounded by water with our humidity and everything. So if we get hotter, are we going to keep the humidity? Is the breeze going to help us control that? 
Are we going to get more hurricanes? There, there's too many variables to say, I think, certainly where we're going. But I think so long as we keep our motto and goal of experimentation, and I know all of us are doing that, all of us are trying new things all the time here on the North Fork and, and in the Hamptons, that I think if we keep doing that, we'll, we'll discover a bright future wherever it leads us to. So experimentation and learning. Um, Jenny, what do you think about the future of Long Island? I think it's only just begun and that Long Island will leave its mark on the map as far as worldwide wine goes. Uh, we are already getting there, I believe, itself, being that we are close to New York City, which is the mecca of life <laughs> for for many of us. And I also hope that we plant more Sauvignon Blanc in Albarino as well. That's <laughs> That's a definite for myself. And I'd also would like to see more sparkling on Long Island. I'm sold on those uh, projects for sure. And Roman, what do you see for the future of um, Long Island? It will always remain a passionate wine region because you cannot do monster huge acreage farms because it's much more hands-on. And so that makes it individual, that makes it personal stories, that makes it much more interesting than huge corporation that, that produce wine that you know, where there is no soul. And with climate change, anyway, this more individual approach is the way you can get through difficult seasons. So that's one thing I think that that's, makes us wonderful, unique, that we have these small, passionate wine regions, family owned. And then in general, the quality and the, the prejudice will go away. And if you are ultimately a collector in 10 years and you don't have a a Long Island wine in your collection, you're not a collector. So there will be definitely a change where this is part of, 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 that, of, that, of that whole market of, of where the top, top wines from Long Island will find a spot in, in people's collection. We're talking about a region which I suppose is in its adolescence and still evolving and developing, but um, in an exciting direction. And these are definitely wines that as you say, should be tried and tasted more. And I think people are beginning to learn that that is the case. And I'm glad that you're all so passionate about the region and the wines and determined to promote them because it's not just about making the wine, it's also about sharing the wine. That's what wine is about. So thank you for joining me. I think that's a great overview of Long Island. And um, thank you for being here. Hello. Come and visit.